the word of God from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God really dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit which dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, his ways are past finding out. One of the greatest tragedies of human life is to pay a bill that you don't owe. After the Civil War, slaves were found who did not know that their bonds had been broken. They were continuing in slavery when they didn't need to. And after almost every war, pockets of soldiers can be found in remote places, still under the impression that they are fighting and not set free from the machinery of war. The same principle applies in the believing life. Christians pay debts they don't owe. And that keeps them from paying the ones they do owe and finding all the joy and power that come from the just discharge of their proper obligations. That's one of the teachings of this passage from Romans chapter 8, the tragedy of mistaken obligations. What then is the true obligation of the believer? That is formed here in these verses, especially as it climaxes in verses 12 and 13. But throughout, the emphasis is this, that the vigor and comfort and power of the Christian life come from paying our true debt. That is, misery and weakness come from paying the false debt. And joy and power 
come from the just discharge of our obligation. And we need to ask ourselves then, what is the Christian's obligation? And how shall we pay it? Well, the first thing we have to see, of course, as the passage unfolds, is that we must recognize our false obligation. We read that in verse 12, So then, brother, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I think every one of us as Christians ought to put that word right up there on the walls of our room, on the dashboards of our cars. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That ought to be engraved in our hearts. Because many Christians are paying a debt they don't owe. And the passages, the verses that lead up to verse 12 are explaining this to us and showing us what this bondage of the flesh really is. Because one cannot know that into which he has come without really knowing that from which he has been delivered. Whenever the mind is set on the flesh, the whole bent of the life and the direction of it is toward things which are visible and tangible. Things of this world, things which satisfy appetite and desire, things which are temporary and passing. Thus, it may not always be vicious at all, it may not be sensual, but to have your mind set on the flesh may be very educated, very uh, politically informed, it may be very civilized and polite and delicate to have your mind, but it's still set on the flesh. The difference is only skin deep because these things, no matter how respectable and high and educated they may be, are still things that relate to this world. And the unbeliever is the one who has his mind set on the flesh. The flesh here means the unrenewed, nature of man, man outside of and apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. But that is not you. All you who are in Christ have a new mindset. You have the mindset of the Spirit, which means that you're interested now in the things of the soul and of eternity, the well-being of others which lasts beyond this life not simply what can be handled and seen, but the unseen becomes real and important to you. The flesh is hostile to God. Now remember that. Why? Because God has commanded that all men are to love him with all of their heart. And when a man shrinks from loving God with all his heart, mind, and so on, that man is not guilty of mere reserve. He's guilty of hatred because he has defied the order of the eternal God. You shall love me with all your heart. The man who is in the flesh has a conception of God and he loves his conception of God, but he does not love the God of the Bible, and that is tantamount to the hatred of God. It's foolish to simply love your own conception of God when it bears no resemblance 
to the God who is revealed in Holy Scripture. But that isn't you. You're not in the flesh. You don't hate God. You love him, and the more he's unfolded to you in the Bible, the more you love him. The flesh is disobedient to God. It obeys many of God's laws because of necessity, but it never obeys one of God's laws because it is his law, and that's what God loves. One gets no honor from God for obeying the laws he's given simply because one has to to live. But when you obey God's law just because he said it, that's a sign of being not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And you have come to delight in God's commandments and the desire and scope of your life is to please him. So we see that we have been brought out from the flesh a Christian is one who has been delivered from its dominance, whose mindset is no longer in that direction, but he is given a new mindset. He is not perfect, and the flesh is always trying to reassert its authority and dominance over him. Nevertheless, the Christian can never go back under the flesh. The Christian can never revert to that old position. It is past and done away. He has been delivered from its dominion, and he is a new creature in Christ Jesus. Thus he has no obligations to the flesh. Did you derive any benefit from the flesh when you were under it? Did the flesh give you anything that would last? Did it exalt the nature or name of God? No. You have no debt to the flesh. But mistakenly and sinfully, somehow we have been deceived into thinking that some sort of debt remains. And the Christian loses his joy in the paying of it. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But, and here we are given the implication of our just obligation, if by the Spirit. Now we see that what is implied here is that we have a great indebtedness to the Spirit of God and not at all to the realm of the flesh. Now who is we? We are debtors. Who is the we? Well, the same persons that are spoken of in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we saw last week how that included and embraced every believer. Whoever is savingly joined to Jesus Christ has no condemnation, but has been lifted out of that realm. And likewise, whoever has been joined to Christ by faith has been taken out of the mindset of the flesh and put in the mindset of the Spirit. So what we are speaking of here, our indebtedness, is for every Christian. There are not two levels of Christians, carnal and spiritual, as is sometimes taught. 
There is one level of Christians, all who belong to Jesus Christ. And this passage does not speak of two kinds of Christians. It speaks of those who are in the flesh. This is the unredeemed, unregenerate man. And those who are in the spirit, those who have no condemnation, who have been united to Christ and are his forevermore. They can never go back to be part of the flesh. They, we, have a tremendous debt to that gracious spirit for what he's done. And in these verses, three things are listed that the Spirit has done for us, for which we are obliged to Him. He has come to dwell in us. Think of that. The Spirit of Almighty God, who is everywhere, has specially and permanently manifested His presence and chosen to make His dwelling place the heart of those who love Him and believe in him. This is a great miracle. It is not enough simply to have the name of Christ written over you or to take his name in a creedal statement. We have the Spirit of God within us, and whoever does not have that Spirit of God within us, whatever his beliefs may be, he is not savingly joined to Jesus Christ. All of us who are Christ's have the Spirit dwelling in us. Now this is a most marvelous, gracious thing that the Spirit of God dwells in these bodies which are dead due to sin. We're told here these bodies are dead. What that means is that the seeds of our destruction and our death remain in our flesh. These bodies will die because sin exists in them. They are destined to die. They are moving toward corruption and decay. Nevertheless, while this process of dying is taking place in us, the Spirit of Almighty God has chosen to take up His tabernacle and to dwell within us. A most amazing paradox and a most glorious thing. That's the first thing the Spirit has done. The second is that He's made our spirit alive because of righteousness. Now that's also amazing. When we fell as a human race, our spirit died. That's why Paul could say of us, you were dead in trespasses and sin. But when the Spirit of God regenerated our nature, he restored that defunct and moribund spirit so that we became alive in spiritual things, a new life, a new disposition, a new energy came to us, a new capacity to worship and discern and fellowship and pray something we did not have before, came to life in us, you became alive. That's the work of God's Spirit because of righteousness. Not our righteousness, never. Because we were robed in the righteousness of Christ. That enabled God to make alive our spirits within us. And that Holy Spirit within us became a fountain of joy and peace life. The wicked, says the scripture, are like a troubled sea. Mire and dirt are forever coming up. They cannot rest. But the believing person 
has an inner tranquility, a peace with God, even though there may be very trying circumstances and most difficult pressures, we have found peace by the Spirit of peace who has come to dwell in us. Well, that's the second thing. He's made us alive. And the third thing is in the future. He will quicken or raise up our mortal body as he did the body of Jesus Christ. Think of that. This body, which is decaying, nevertheless has a most noble inhabitant within it, Christ. And someday this body will be worthy of its great tenant. And in order to do that, the Holy Spirit promises that at the day of resurrection, he will transform this body and change it to be like his glorious body. And then the tenant and the temple will be symmetrical in beauty and conform to one another in splendor. Oh, what a great promise that this weakening body of mine has a future before it, a future of glory, not by anything I've done, but because the Spirit of God dwelling within it will not have the temple of God see corruption ultimately, but will finally be changed to be like his glorious body. Now, because of these three things, the dwelling of the Spirit, the quickening of my own spirit and the final raising and changing of my body, I have a tremendous obligation to the blessed Spirit of God. I have not one, but a thousand. Not a thousand, but ten thousand. Yea, ten thousand times ten thousand obligations that stretch from eternity to eternity. Debts which I owe to the Spirit of God and were I to spend all my days repaying, there should still not be one mark on the balance side of the ledger. So indebted am I to the gracious Spirit of God for what he has done in me. How then, how then could I ever be mistaken and be paying back to that miserable life of the flesh from which I have been set free? and so paying to it that I am unable to pay to the blessed Spirit who loves me, who dwells within me, and who will one day change me and glorify me. Therefore, verse 13 makes very clear to me how to pay the debt to the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now please, pay very close attention to this verse because you can go astray in understanding it, and many have. Let's understand it very clearly. Look at the if. In the Bible, if does not always mean uncertainty. Sometimes it means the opposite, certainty. For example, son, if you touch that stove, you will burn your finger. That's certainty. And that's what it is here. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God's showing us a certain proposition. 
He is showing us what his law is. That is, he has established a means and an end. The end is to live. We're going to talk about what that means. The means is to mortify or to put to death the deeds of the body. In the same way, the certainty applied to the first verse. In verse 12, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And if there's anyone here whose mindset is this world, and however respectable he is, nevertheless, he is committed to and pursuing the things of this life and this world, you will die. That's a certainty. That if is certain. And just as certain is the proposition for Christians that if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But we must understand very clearly what this means. Now there's a warning implied in this, and the warning is even though you may name the name of Christ, if you find the bent of your life and the pursuit of your life and the direction of your life is fleshly, and that really you are in hostility to God and disobedient to Him and cannot obey Him, you may simply be secure in your sin and not delivered from your sin. When Christ saves, He does not save us in our sin. He saves us from our sin, by which I mean that there must always be the radical change of life, which is the deliverance of a man from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the Spirit. And if you see no sign of that, and if the whole bent and tenor and direction of your life is fleshly, then you need to go back and examine again the basis on which you think you have been saved, and re-examine that to see if, in fact, your confidence is in Christ alone as Savior and Lord. But going to this, what does it mean? Put to death the deeds of the body. Now, it's important to realize that this matter live is very, does not mean here live eternally. You will live refers to the quality of Christian life you're going to have. Certainly, we know, no one is saved by mortifying the deeds of the body. It cannot mean eternal life. We're going to see what it does mean, but hold that in your mind. What does it mean to mortify the deeds or to put to death the deeds of your body? Well, picture the residing sin which is in your flesh as a person. It isn't, but picture it that way. How would you kill that person? That's the putting to death of the deeds of the body. Well, you'd cut off food from him. And so, you make no provision for the flesh. You do not set up things that will enable you to sin. If you feed your lusts and stimulate them and titillate them, they will grow and demand more and more satisfaction from you. But cut off food to those appetites and those dimensions of your life which are strictly lustful and defiling to you. 
nip in the bud every approach to them, every attempt to have these reach the fullness of sin and bring forth their awful deeds. You can even be humorous with the old man within you, as it were. Tell him you don't owe him a thing. You don't owe him any food, any life. You don't owe him any encouragement whatsoever. You see, the body, the physical body, is it really constitutes, in a way, a great problem to the Christian because it is the point at which sin will seek to enter into your life. And sin will seek to take those natural instincts which are God-given and turn them in evil directions. And you must resist that. Sin will try to hinder the life of discipline and self-control which is everywhere mandated in the Word of God. And you must resist that. Therefore, all through the New Testament we get commands like this. Put to death that which is earthly within you, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, envy, slander, malice. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its lusts. Throughout the Scripture there is this constant call for the putting to death or the mortifying of sinful appetites or sinful activities or excesses, or sinful attitudes of pride, or arrogance, or selfishness, and so on. To mortify is to take hold of your life in such a way that you do not feed, or make provision for, or encourage, or allow any room to these tendencies of the flesh which remain within you and which would become more and more dominant and cause you to become lethargic and heavy and dull as a Christian person. Now, dear friends, listen carefully. This is crucial to your life. You don't do this in your own strength alone. See what it says? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here is the gracious assistance of the Spirit of the living God to whom we already owe so much, who will come and aid every believer in the process of the mortification of the deeds of the body. Let me give you an illustration. Jesus said to a man with a crippled arm, stretch out your arm. A man couldn't stretch out his arm. But when Jesus said it, and the man put forth some will, the arm came forth. And that's what Jesus says to you. Mortify the deeds of the body. You can't do it alone. But move toward it. Take a step. And the assistance of the Holy Spirit will liberate you and allow you to do the very thing Christ is calling you to do. John Owen said, The mortification of the flesh, when it is done with self-strength, by the invention of the self, 
and with the end of self-righteousness in view is the basis of all false religion. You must be very careful into being deceived and thinking that the discipline and self-control of the body is somehow in itself meritorious or able to be done by your own efforts. It is by the Spirit you cooperate and work together with Him in the setting aside, the putting to death, the mortifying of these evil tendencies that remain in the body. Now the word live. Remember we had a reference to it. Now bring that reference out and think of this word. You shall live. Well, we've already seen it cannot mean eternal life here. It cannot. That would go against everything else that Scripture teaches. Could a man, by putting to death the deeds of the body, gain eternal life? Never. That's false religion. Though many are trying to do just that. What does it mean then? Well, a clue is given, as Scripture always gives clues, in 1 Thessalonians. There we read, Paul says, If you stand fast, speaking to his Christian friends, If you stand fast, we shall live. Now, Paul could not have meant that he was going to be saved if the Thessalonians stood fast. It was utterly clear Paul was saved whether the Thessalonians stood or fell. What Paul meant was not the essence of life and its being, but the quality of life. If you stand fast, Thessalonians, why, our life will be full of joy. We will do handsprings. We'll really have joy and comfort and power in living if you stand fast. And that's what this means. That the Christian life that has been made lean and disciplined by the mortifying of the deeds of the body is a life of great joy and power and of great comfort. In fact, the quality of your Christian life depends upon the mortifying of the deeds of the body. And this is why many Christians are miserable and ineffective and have little joy they haven't learned this little-known truth of the Word of God. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ah, oh, friends, you see, this is not a single dramatic crisis experience that suddenly wafts you into victorious living. That's an error that's being taught today, that by some second blessing, you can be shifted onto a whole new plane. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're talking about a gradual, continuing, increasing progress in the putting to death of the deeds of the body. We're talking about a vir very virile kind of faith, that takes hold of my life as a responsible partner with God in the disciplining of the soul. You don't do that in one crisis experience. Some are saying, all you do is hand over your sins to God and abide in Christ and you don't have to worry about your sins anymore. That is passive and that is frightening. 
The moment you stop abiding in Christ, it's all over. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of the Scripture is not passive, but active. We are to mortify the deeds of the body. There's no way around that. This is the calling of the believer. This is the way he sets the tone and, and beauty and vigor of his life. I want to challenge you today. Why are you settling for a mediocre Christian life, an average one? Why not set out for greatness? Why not set out to be noteworthy as a man or woman of God? Why not set your sights high and determine that all of the vigor and all the comfort and all the blessing that is to be had in Christ you're going to have. And you're going to start today in the mortifying of the deeds of the body by the Spirit that you can live the way Christ meant, abundant life. That's what I challenge you to. Don't pay that other obligation. You have no debt there. Here's your debt. Start. Let's pray. Oh, blessed Holy Spirit, how merciful and kind, how gentle and powerful you have been to come and invade us, to regenerate us and take up your abode within us, to give us a spirit of our own and promise to make our bodies new. How indebted we are to you, O gracious Spirit. And we would, from this moment on, forsake all false obligations to the flesh and begin to put to death those and thus to pay our great debt to you, O gracious Spirit, through Christ our Lord. Amen.